the progress of redemption in Titus. Now, uh, there's 46 verses in the whole letter. Um, and it, some of these uh, you know, books and letters that we've looked at, it's, in a sense, it's been relatively simple to get a main theme of the progress of redemption, this particular aspect, for instance, of the, God's revelation. As we look at all of, all of the comprehensive layout of the Scriptures, we can see that uh, oftentimes it isn't unique to a book, but it is, uh, it is a very important theme in the progress of redemption. In this letter to Titus from the Apostle Paul, uh, it isn't that hard to get a, an overall theme of the entire nature of the letter and also to see that that theme is quite important to our lives in Christ. By way of continued introduction, uh, I'd like to uh, cite another hymn that we didn't actually sing this morning, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. The first stanza, how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he should give his only Son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss, the Father turns his face away, as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. You know, I wonder how many of us can really do our best to appreciate what it is that the Lord Jesus has done. I wonder how, how many of us really enter into affirming and owning what it is that we are, we are called in this hymn, in the first line of the hymn, to make a wretch his treasure. When we think of those wretches that Christ make, makes his treasure... It is possible that we're thinking of the other people. The other ones that we go to church with. But that, of course, is directed to us. That's the reality of who we are. And I mention that hymn because the Apostle Paul really begins the letter with the same idea. Uh, And that idea is associated with his apostolic calling. He says in verse 1 of chapter 1, I would direct your attention there, Titus chapter 1 and verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. Now, it's important that you recognize that this, of course, is one of the last letters uh, that the Apostle Paul wrote. And it's important that you would recognize that when he says, for the sake of the faith of God's elect, their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness, the Apostle Paul is including in that being shipwrecked, lost at sea, stoned, left for dead, imprisoned. What he's saying is, is all of the things that the Lord promised, in fact, that I would endure, I do it for this reason. For the sake of the elect. And for that they would understand sound doctrine which accords with godliness. We often run into the same trouble with a lack of appreciation for what it is that the Lord has done. This is the common plight of man. And really, I'm persuaded, likely, it seems to be getting worse, actually, as our culture continues to run its course unashamedly into new depths of sin and depravity. Simply because the idea of owning an appreciation for what the Lord Jesus has done runs absolutely counter to the pride of man. And that, of course, is one of the primary things that God is doing in our redemption is He is putting down and evacuating our own pride. Now, this does show up in what it is 
that the Apostle Paul brings to Titus because the primary theme and really the only theme and focus of the book is simply this idea that right doctrine leads to right practice. Right doctrine leads to right practice and that practice can be described as good works. Right doctrine received in the fertile soil of those in union with Christ by the hand of saving faith will inevitably result in good works. Now, I want to try my very best to help us to really understand this idea behind good works. The reason that I want to labor over this is because because our own sinful flesh is always inclined to legalism. We're all, we, we are, until the day we die, we are going to be sitting before the Lord Jesus Christ um, as a proof of our self-righteousness, what it is that we have done. And that is often why people dismiss the moral law of God, because they're so fearful of doing that thing. But what the Apostle Paul is getting at here is something that's brought up in our own confession. And it's something that pastors and elders have labored over since the beginning of time. And that's the recognition that really is revealed to us in a number of places, but not least of which in Jeremiah chapter 31 with the New Covenant. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now this is none other uh, than regeneration. Jeremiah is speaking of regeneration and what it is urgently important for us to understand with the Apostle Paul's theme to Titus as he speaks this great charge in the presence, if you will, of the church at Crete is that he wants for the people and for Titus to desperately understand the same things that those that have been charged with uh, the care of your soul. Is that when you don't enter into good works, we are studiously not concerned that you aren't developing self-righteousness. We are studiously concerned that you are not redeemed. That's the issue. And and this is the idea. The idea is that, that union with Christ, being made alive, when the Holy Spirit, as the Catechism says, when, the, when we, we are, our effectual calling occurs when we are given saving faith and brought into union with the Lord Jesus Christ, that brings with it a changed affection. We... We grow and we no longer desire the things that we used to desire. Now, it isn't an instantaneous thing. It's not an instantaneous thing. But when you look at the expectations, for instance, through the Scriptures revealed in our own confession, you look at that, it may be that you see that and you see these calls for faithful walking as some attempt for you to prove what it is the Lord is doing. But it's not precisely that. It's simply an indication that your affections have been changed. What is it that you want? What do you desire in your heart? Do you, do you long after Christ? Do you have any respectability for the Word of God? Have you affirmed the fact that you are not your own? Often when people come against the doctrines ultimately of Christ, all that I hear them saying is they're talking about themselves. 
It's what I want. It's who I am. It's what I desire. It's what I deserve. It's my right. It's, what, it's, it's my authority, my sphere, and so forth and so on. That, that isn't the way that the redeemed speak. The redeemed speak about their Savior who saved a wretch and who, and who recognized the beauty in following the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what the Apostle Paul is writing to Titus about. And it's important that we recognize here, and you will notice, he isn't talking here about justification. He isn't regaling in the beauties of adoption. He isn't addressing the magnificent mystery of the Trinity here. Not at all. You can see the summary of the doctrine that he lists as urgent. It isn't that these other doctrines aren't urgent. It's just that these other doctrines aren't revealed in the mundane realities of our lives, often. But these things are. Older men, chapter 2, verse 2, are to be sober-minded. That's got nothing to do with drinking, by the way. It has to do with being serious about life. Dignified. Right? His directions to older women. And so forth and so on. And one of the urgent things about this, and this is something that people of the Word of God that embrace uh, a lofty and faithful historic theology, is that they're inclined, again, and this is something that we must fight against every day, they're inclined to think that understanding a doctrine is an indication that I'm doing the doctrine. But that is notoriously what the Apostle Paul is addressing here. He's talking about where we live. And the question here is, what are you doing? I don't care about what it is you understand. What are you doing? What are you doing? And that is the true test of understanding. Again, right doctrine leads to right action. Right doctrine leads to right action. Not for you to purchase self-righteousness, but as an expression of affections that have genuinely been changed because you've been made alive in Christ, the same as Lazarus got out of that tomb. Why did he get out of that tomb? Because he was made alive. He was made alive in Christ. Paul only laid the foundations of the church in Crete, and he charges Titus to carry on the work. There's much left to do. Soon after Paul's departure, Satan labored to not only overthrow the government of the church, but also her doctrine. Some who through ambition desired to be elevated to pastors, and because Titus didn't comply with their wishes, spoke unfavorably to many people about him. This is one reason Paul spoke to him about these qualifications and levied his apostolic authority upon the church. And so we see here, uh, often when we think of Titus, we may think of the qualification for elders. Yes, it does show up. But when we think about, again, the whole purpose of the letter is so the Cretan church can hear along with Titus what it is that's required to be a leader in the church. Right? And this is the idea. Of course, it's consistent with the other pastoral epistles, and it has an urgent importance, but nonetheless we see what it is that he's doing. Paul not only addresses urgent issues in the church, but he cuts through the fog with a bottom line regarding the doctrine of Christ and the true manifestation of saving faith conform to the doctrines of Christ. That the new life of the individual is still in the same cultural setting, but it isn't characterized by the old man, as it were. It's a life characterized by good works, faithfulness to God and others, self-denial, and selfless service to others. Now, Crete was an interesting 
place. And Crete was a place where the idea of self-denial and selfless service would stand out like a bright light in darkness. Sometimes when I read about Crete, I wonder if it might not give Corinth a run for her money. Uh, And so Crete is a place of debauchery. It's a fascinating place that uh, the Lord has called. It's a wonderful place for a church. A wonderful place for the gospel. And so the Apostle Paul recognizes that. But nonetheless, we also see in that the incredible pull uh, that our own old lives have to our new life in Christ. Right? Justification in our lives, this entry point um, in our own life for salvation. It isn't the entry point of salvation. Salvation began, your salvation began before the foundation of the world. But you enter into your salvation in your lifetime by being made alive in the Lord Jesus Christ and enjoying initially this concept of justification. The Apostle Paul sees that that's only a declaration of righteousness making you right in the eyes of God. However, you still have those old sinful habits. And imagine what it's like to live in the midst of such cultural debauchery and to be trying out these new affections that the Lord has given in the midst of such a challenging thing. So let's look here at chapter 1. As I mentioned, Paul's out of prison here. Seems like um, some would refer to his situation as a fourth missionary journey that's not showing up in the book of Acts. But nonetheless, the Apostle Paul is between crests in his life. If you were to think of his life (laughs) in the waves, uh, he's between crests. He's not in jail. Um, as he writes this letter to Titus. Verse 3, we see what it is that God is doing. He says, At the proper time, God manifested in His Word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior, the Apostle Paul sees that preaching is the primary means God has given to accomplish this purpose in the elect. Now, uh, again, what's the, the purpose, the main purpose, the focus of the book is, again, right doctrine leads to right action, right? And that right action has to be associated with right doctrine. Uh, two people can do the same thing and have poor doctrine, and your results will ultimately be different. They will most certainly be spiritually different. And so that's the reason that, again, these, this, this idea, right doctrine, leads to right practice. Right practice can only be accomplished by right doctrine. And the Apostle Paul says that the primary means of this is through the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. That's why this injunction of teaching and preaching is so important. Even we see here in the book of Titus, this letter. Verse 9, when we look at the qualifications for the elder, he says here he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Now, I'd like to draw your attention to this idea of as taught. Again, Paul's argument is, uh, you know, right doctrine leads to right practice. So what is right doctrine? Well, right doctrine is what my conscience tells me. Is that it? No. No, that's not it. It's as taught. As taught. And this is another fascinating situation that we have encountered in our own fellowship. The expectations 
and the appropriate discipline levied upon the members of the church through Jesus Christ isn't in accordance with your conscience. Nor is it in accordance with my conscience. It's in accordance with the Word of God as aligned with the confession. And so that's why it's so important for people that are associated with this fellowship to affirm and understand that we will be applying the confession to your life as taught. As taught. This wasn't a choose-your-own-adventure idea that the Apostle Paul set Titus on. And this is the issue that he had to contend with, right? Is that, is that what? He, here he is, minding his own business, as it were, beginning a church in Crete, right? And he's dealing with angry men who want to teach that which isn't sound doctrine. And the reason that it isn't sound doctrine is, of course, because it wasn't what was taught, but also we see that it doesn't accord with godliness. It doesn't accord with godliness. This is another implication of sound doctrine. Does your doctrine accord with godliness? Is it associated with these good works that the Apostle Paul is drawing our attention to? The word preached must be as taught. It's not new. It's not made up. It's not in accord with philosophical ideas. It's the Word of God rightly understood. Only that will qualify as sound. Those who contradict the sound teaching must be rebuked. It's a very uncomfortable situation that the Lord Jesus has left His elders in the position of. Unfortunately, we don't get the privilege of simply rebuking rebuking false doctrine. We're to review people. That's harder. It's more difficult. It's personal. They'll burn your house down. This is where Titus lived. Why? Why why is this why is this so important? Well, because we have a mission, because also because there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, as the Bible says here. What's the mission? Well, the mission is that before the foundation of the world, God has set apart for himself those who he's decided to redeem. And he's decided to redeem them out of the nations of the earth. And he's decided to redeem them through something the Apostle Paul calls, in a sense, jestingly, as the foolishness of preaching. That involves a new heart. In which the affections are changed. This this thing that the Lord Jesus Christ gave his life to, to save a wretch like me. And the Apostle Paul also did the same, as did all the other apostles. And many, of course, who followed, gave their lives, as the book of Hebrews says. Why? Well, for me and for you. So that we might be given life in Christ. Eternity is a real thing. Heaven is a real thing. Hell is a real thing. And it's these affections that the Apostle Paul is getting at, these good works. What is it that you want to do? Right. The Apostle John reveals this in his little letter, the first letter, the first epistle of John. He talks about love for God, love for His people, and love for His Word. Are those new affections for you? Because if they're not... Then again, our, our counsel in accordance with the Word of God is to, is to go back to the Lord Jesus Christ and, 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 and beg of Him to change your heart. Because we are very concerned that you might not be in Christ. And that's what's so urgent and so important. We have a mission. 
This one must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. Why? Consider the environment. Verse 10, there are many who are insubordinate. They will not, will not subordinate themselves, right, to the word of God. They're upsetting whole families, as verse 11 says. They're empty talkers. Empty talkers. The man got introduced to uh, an interesting little phrase in our theology study on Thursday. That was this phrase, dead capital. Our life in Christ is not dead capital. Right? It isn't meaningless. It's not that it doesn't do anything. It's quite powerful. The Lord Jesus Christ is quite powerful in union with Him through the applied doctrine and the power of the Holy Spirit. Amazing things will inevitably happen in the redeemed. And that is at absolute opposites from being an empty talker. Right? It's totally incongruent. And lastly, this idea of deceive. These are deceivers. False doctrine is deceptive. I'll go so far to say that oftentimes it isn't apparently false. It isn't apparently false. What did Adam and Eve say about that tree of the knowledge of good and evil? They said it looks good for food. It's not apparently evil. Right? But it was. It wasn't for them. It would have never been for them. It was not designed for them. It wasn't designed as a food for them, ever. They were never to eat of that tree. There was plenty to eat in the garden. Right? Their hope should have been set not on that tree, but on the tree of life. But they didn't want the tree of life. They wanted this other tree that was never designed for food. Right? It didn't look apparently bad, but it was. There's the deception. Verse 13 This testimony is true, therefore rebuke them sharply sharply that they may be sound in the faith. The testimony in verse 12, that is, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Such a wretch as I. Interesting counsel that the Apostle Paul gives Titus here in verse 13. Rebuke them sharply. And this alone can lead to soundness in the faith. Now, to not hold sound doctrine doesn't necessarily mean a person has been elevated to the position of teacher and is teaching unbiblical doctrine. Now, this is an important point. Teachers aren't the only people that hold false doctrine. Right? And teachers aren't the only people that teach. I don't imagine R.C. Sproul is the first person to ever write a book called Everyone's a Theologian. But nonetheless, he has written a book called Everyone's a Theologian. And that is true. That is true. Uh, Because, uh, unfortunately, we all speak to issues confidently and authoritatively. But do we actually understand what the Bible says about these issues that we happily wind jam on? Do we know what the Confession says about these issues? Do we understand the Scriptures? Is our doctrine sound? Verse 16, these profess to know God, they deny Him by their works. Those not involved in good works reveal they don't know God savingly. 
what they do or don't do reveals the status of their relationship to Christ. Now, some uh, use this term fruit inspector and... It sounds a little bit cold and icy, and I think it really sort of is, and it really isn't what Titus is getting at here. God is particularly interested in the redeemed, not even necessarily what they have done, but what did they mean to do. And this is a revelation of our affections. Now, this isn't authorizing you to be sinfully clumsy in your obedience and your happy bearing of good fruit and good works in Christ. But the point is this, is his expectation uh, is rightly understood as gospel obedience. Gospel obedience brings under the understanding that it isn't perfect. Nothing we do is perfect. None of your good works are perfect. None of them come from a perfect heart. So they, there are exterior, unfortunately, problematic motives or situations, the, the, the things that we do. But again, the question associated with our affections, why do you do what you do? And are, is, this, is this situation, is this your involvement in these good works, is it a reflection of your union with the Lord Jesus Christ? Some people think they're too busy. Some people are under the impression that good works are a thing they do in the margins of their lives, Right? I just never really had time for that. That's a categorical error. The reason grass doesn't grow isn't because it never had time for that. Right? You take a grass seed and you put it in fertile soil and it will grow. Take it to the bank. It'll grow. You won't be able to document in your agricultural journal that this seed didn't have time to grow. You will be able to document in your journal that your good seed placed in fertile soil grew every single time. That's the point, right? Saving faith inevitably results in good works. And these good works come about as a result of right doctrine. That's the letter's... Complete focus. And again in chapter 2, verses 1 through 6, as for you teach what accords with sound doctrine. Now, one of the things that stands out, as I mentioned in this letter, is that Paul spends little time speaking about the loftier loftier doctrine so prevalent in Romans or the letters to the churches. But he urges Titus in the presence of the Cretan church to focus on the ethical doctrines of living in this present age. It seems proverbial that most people would far rather discuss doctrinal truths that are more theoretical and consider injunctions such as being serious-minded or not slandering to be meddling and unnecessary. They would rather discuss doctrinal truths that are theoretical and consider the imperatives of being serious-minded or not slandering as meddling and unnecessary. The reality is that most of us don't spend our days contemplating the eternal decree. Although Shailen and Jillian and I did last Wednesday. It is a vital doctrine. But we spend our days inclined uh, often to want to escape the mundane, which is where everyone lives most of their lives. Doubtless this is why he urges Titus to teach the young women to be workers at home and why he teaches the young men to be self-controlled. 
The purpose of all of this is stated in chapter 2, verse 5, that the Word of God may not be reviled. It really is pretty simple, right? You can find all kinds of people that are willing to talk about some of these loftier theoretical uh, doctrines, which many of them are important, particularly those, obviously, that are biblical and have a proper application. But I think that it is particularly noteworthy that the Apostle Paul directs Titus that these things that are really up front in our lives, it's about what we say, how we live, how we spend our money, what we do with our time, the kind of friends we have, the kind of books we read, the kind of movies we go to, the sort of culture that we take in in our families and so forth. This is really the point. These are the ethical injunctions or imperatives that the Apostle Paul is getting at here. It reminds me of a simple truth of warfare that you can see particularly well in World War II. And that is, in a sense, there needed to be superiority in the air, in the water, and on the land in order to win that war. But the reality is is that people don't live in the air. And they don't live in the water. They live on land. Wars are won with a land battle that requires the superiority of the air and of the sea. Now, unfortunately, our government has forgotten that. But I regress. And so... This idea is really, in a sense, similar to what the Apostle Paul is saying. Where do we live? We live in the mundane of conversations about washing machines and pencils and car repairs, right? We live in the mundane of neighbors who are strange or encroaching on our property or kind or they smoke dope or whatever the case may be. That's where we live. We live with bosses who are happy one day and mean the next. That, that's life. Children that run through mud puddles and then onto your carpet. That's where we live. And the Apostle Paul is directing Titus, this is the place where you'll be able to identify life in Christ. And if your doctrine doesn't impact that, the battle is not going to be won. That's what he's getting at. This idea... Older men, he says, to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in the faith and love, and in steadfastness. I would like to draw your attention to Ephesians chapter 5. Because you're likely more familiar with Ephesians 5 than you are Titus chapter 2. And you're likely more familiar with this one verse in Ephesians 5 than you are with Titus chapter 2. But I want to direct your attention to the strategy that the Apostle Paul has. And the reality of what it is that he's getting at. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 33, there's this very common phrase, let each one of you, that is husbands, love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Why do you think the Apostle Paul gave that injunction? Oh, I know. It's because all husbands always love their wives and they're always delighted to love their wives and all the wives always respect their husbands and they're always happy about that and the Apostle Paul is simply doing this theological judo move while they're already doing this and he's saying keep on doing it. Is that why? No. 
No, husbands are naturally inclined to use their wives. Not love them. Right? Wives are not naturally inclined to think of all the ways that they can build up their husbands. They're just trying to figure out how to get the guy to take the trash out. Right? So, the same idea I think we should see here in Titus chapter 2 in these imperatives that he gives to Titus to be really central in his teaching. Older men are always serious and dignified. No, they're not. They get to a certain age and they don't care what anybody thinks. That's what he's addressing. They're they're cynical and they're sarcastic, naturally, and they don't care what people think. They don't care about theology. They don't care about being sound in the faith. They could care little about loving others. That's where they are. They're hardened. They're Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Remember the Lord before the days get hard. Why do you want to remember the Lord before the days get hard? Because after they get hard, you don't care. And he's, he's urging Titus. Talk to these men. Help them to understand. If they never get beyond this, then the implication is, is that they're not in Christ. Older women, reverent, not slanderers, not slave to wine, teaching what is good. Teaching the young ladies through their lives to love husbands and children, be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to husbands. It's the same idea. It's no secret. What woman with little children at home doesn't long to escape every single day? But we we need the power of Christ. And this is where it's revealed. In the everyday mundane. Can you... When you get to the end of yourself, as we looked at in our reading in the letter of the Apostle Paul to the Corinthians, can you tap into and take to yourself the power of Christ? No, I'm going to stay. And we're going to figure out long division. Right? We're going to, we're going to read this and we're going to ask the questions to the children. And I'm going to do my best to be joyful in the midst and look at the long game. Younger men are directed to be self-controlled. And they can look on as Titus is urged in verse 7 of chapter 2 to be a model of good works in your teaching to show integrity and dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned. Now, the Apostle Paul goes further in verse 7 in his directions to the church. There is a little strategy here, I think. I had one dentist tell me that uh, he asked me the question. He said, do you floss twice a day? I struggle with flossing. But I think that was a strategic question. He directs me to floss twice a day, then I maybe I should really redouble my efforts on flossing once a day at least. The Apostle Paul doesn't merely direct the church to invest themselves in good works as a part of their union with the Lord Jesus. He says that they are to be a model of good works. That's a different story. 
a model of good works. And so the point is, here comes a new guy coming in to the building, right? And we're excited about this guy, and he, he, you know, hopefully will be following the Lord. And he says, you know, I'm really not sure what to do here. I mean, the Lord has redeemed me, and I want to... And, and so, what is the, one of the elders, what is he able to do? He says, go over here to this guy. Talk to this guy. Talk to this guy over here. He's a model of good works. This guy over here, yeah, he understood. This lady over here, yep. Watch her. Do what she does. That's it. What is that guy reading? Read what he's reading. Go where he goes. Right? A model. A model of good works. Verse 10 of chapter 2, Paul describes good works as an adornment of the gospel, calls upon the church to reveal sound doctrine by their adornment of it being models of those who do good works. How many of you have said, like me, that if you only lived in a different time, I'd be a great boss if it wasn't for all these people. Be a great mom if it wasn't for. Chapter 2, verse 12. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in that age that you desire. No, no, wait a minute. In the present age. I'm not sure how my children are gonna gonna live 50 years from now. I'm not going to be here. But I need to figure out how I'm going to live today, right? And the idea is that God will equip us, and He will equip our children as they hopefully will stand on our shoulders. We should expect our children to be holier than we are. Because they can see further. And that's another reason we should listen to the Apostle Paul. He's seen the end of this. As has the Lord Jesus Christ. Two fourteen, the summary of Christ's mission is that He gave Himself to buy us out of lawlessness and be purified by Christ, to be owned by Christ and be characterized by zealousness for good works. Can your walk with the Lord be characterized in this way? Purified, owned, and zealous. Purified, owned, and zealous. Now, don't, don't mischaracterize God in all this, okay? Who is God? What is the character of God? We've got to know that if we're going to understand His intention and His injunctions for us here. What is His disposition toward the redeemed? Tenderness. Love. I went out last night, you know, I'm doing all the farm chores these days. And I took a little study break and I went out and I spent some time with the little sheep out there. It was it was very enriching. And I go out there and I just pet the lamb. And I love the lamb. And that's a picture of God with us. He loves us. He's tender. He's merciful. He's full of care. He's a protector. 
of who we are. He owns us. But ownership, what a wonderful thing that is. I had two other sheep, and they're not owned by me anymore. They got eaten. He's a protector, far better than I was for those two sheep. That's who God is. That's that's who He is calling us in our works associated with our union with Christ, purified, owned, and zealous. He's called upon in chapter 3, verse 1, to remind them, the church, to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Are you offended to be reminded? Sometimes we really are. Honey, do this. Don't forget. You're on your way to do it, right? Just a reminder. You've got to admit, you forgot the last two times. Three eight. the saying is trustworthy. What saying is that? I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. We talked about being purified, owned, zealous, careful, and devoted. Can that describe you? Three ten. As for the person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. This is, uh, it should be a sense of urgency to the commitment to right doctrine. The word there actually translated as for a person who stirs up division. That word is very simply, it's one word. It shows up actually in the King James. It's the word heretic. The concept, really the definition behind the word heretic is they have selected a position that is in opposition to that word as taught. As taught. Now this this may be uncomfortable, but this is one of the things that is something culturally that we've got to contend with, and that is that the grand issues of our day and the issues associated with the Scriptures and how we do church, as it were, with the confession, are not matters of our own thinking and minds and persuasions. They're matters of the truth as taught. Three fourteen. Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. And this often is a picture, really, of our church, isn't it? I mean, we, we do have a reputation for being kindly and warm, but we also know that there are other areas for us to learn, right? There are ways that we can work in that. This is not merely an urgent call to faithful practice, but it's an urgent call to gain and hold fast to sound doctrine so that the inevitable will happen. 